Okay, I think we'll make a start, seeing you good people are all here waiting for us. Um, welcome to this final Institute for Government uh, Fringe, our final <laughs> panelist, Hotfoot down the aisle, is how we'd like it. Um, thank you so much. Um, we always say to ourselves, journalists always run it fine. <laughs> um, so yes, our final fringe uh, of Labour Conference this year, what should Keir Starmer's centre of government look like should the Labour win the next election? My name's Hannah White and I'm Director of the Institute for Government um, and a big thanks to Prospect for working with us on this event. So the Institute for Government has been running a year-long commission on the centre of government, by which we mean the Treasury, Number 10, and the Cabinet Office, uh, because we think it doesn't always work very well. Um, we think that uh, should there be a Labour government, uh, as with any incoming government, they will come in with lots of ideas, and it's really important that the centre uh, operates as well as it possibly can uh, to enable them to give uh, effect to those ideas. But if you look at how uh, the centre has operated in recent years, uh, there's, there's quite a lot wrong with it. So that's what we want to talk about today. I'm delighted we've got an excellent panel uh, with us uh, to discuss this. Uh, working from right to, my right to left, uh, we have Mike Clancy, General Secretary of Prospect, uh, Ian Mulhern, who's an economist and public policy expert and a member of our uh, group of commissioners on our Centre Commission, Sonia Soda, who's, of course, Chief Leader Writer at The Observer, and uh, my colleague, Alex Thomas, who is our Programme Director for Civil Service and Policymaking at the Institute and leading the Centre Commission. So a very well-equipped panel, I'm sure you'll agree, to discuss this topic. We'll start off with some questions uh, from me to the panel, and then we'll go to questions from the floor, so make sure you've got those ready uh, to put to the panel. So Ian, seeing you are kind of home team, uh, I'm going to ask you to kick off uh, by setting out what you think is, is wrong with the centre of government and why it's important uh, for a Labour government to think about how it's designed and might potentially be redesigned. Thanks, Henry. You've taken me by surprise. Though. I thought it was going to be second, so I'd have a chance to figure out what the answer was. But here I am. Um, and uh, thanks all so much for, for coming. It's amazing to see how popular this is. It, it's, a, it's a big ask to come for some, something on the centre of government at uh, 4 p.m. on Tuesday of, uh, of the conference. So I salute your indefatigability uh, on, that, uh, on that front. Um, first of all, like, why is this so important? Why is getting the centre of government right uh, so Im important? I think, you know, uh, one thing to, to sort of, one way of thinking about it is that governments can act through a number of levers. They can, you know, uh, make a record for themselves through legislative fiat, rather like the 1997 Labour government did. They can do tax and spend measures, or they can actually drive change through much more granular delivery and reform from the centre. And if you think about a Labour government coming in uh, next year, if it does, um, it's not really going to have well, not quite the breadth of legislative uh, uh, barrage that, that the 1997 uh, government had. The tax and spend levers are relatively highly constrained. And so the effectiveness of the centre is going to be really central to uh, building up the story for whatever uh, the government will record, the government will uh, leave. Um, but if we look at the way the centre of government has been organised over sort of recent decades, it's been hugely volatile. Um, so 
how why has it been volatile um why uh, what are the reasons for that well i mean we've seen you know major and thatcher had a relatively minimal number 10 operation uh, so did blair in the first term then come the second term he brings in the prime minister's delivery unit and the uh, prime minister's strategy unit and really beefs up uh, number 10 um substantially and um i always think it, it, that was brilliantly parodied uh, in uh, the thick of it by my favorite character julius nicholson um who i think malcolm tucker said um uh, julius nicholson's blue sky vision and helicopter thinking will enable this government in his own words to go beyond delivery and beyond that uh, and i think uh, that sort of summed up the sort of reaction to that kind of model that then when david cameron came in he kind of swept that away and went back to a much more minimalist operation i was actually speaking to a veteran of the cameron uh, administration yesterday who said him and a colleague used to choose different rooms to sit in in number 10 every day because there was so few people uh, there um, which strikes up quite the image um, and then of course that got quickly unwound and, and Cameron sort of introduced uh, an implementation unit which looked a lot like the delivery unit so we see this kind of like hokey cokey this constant revolution why is there so much volatility well you know partly it's about the prime minister's personal style and their own sort of proclivities um, uh, part of it seems to have been just a rejection of what went before, a desire just to change things. Uh, and part of it is inevitably the political environment. If you are a government coming in with a new mandate and a big majority um, and a long life expectancy, effectively, then the, 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 the rewards of having a, uh, a strategy and a mechanism to drive it are much higher than if you're uh, looking forward 12 months um, about how you're going to get through the next election. So inevitably, those things play a part. But that lack of structure creates a lot of problems, um, which lie at the heart of, I think, our politics. I think there are four. Um, the first is it creates uh, a bias towards short-termism. You know, top-flight politicians have to be responsive and reactive to whatever the issue of the day is. Um, but unless there's some kind of structure to, to help them think about the long-term that inevitably means that the uh, urgent displaces the important, uh, which leads the government to sort of become a bit rudderless. Um, the second is that a lack of structure accentuates a prime minister's weaknesses. You know, they come to power with a lot of personal legitimacy and they'll tend to form a, an administration which reflects uh, their own sort of uh, interests, strengths, and bring in people who think like them, uh, and that can often not be in their long-term interest. Um, you know, they need a, they, they need something to lean against those tendencies and put the alternative point of view. The third problem it creates, I think, is. Um, uh, a, a lack of strategy if they simply don't have the capacity at the centre to develop that strategy, but also the heft to then drive that across Whitehall. Uh, you simply can't do that with a small and relatively weak uh, number 10. Um, and fourth, uh, it unbalances government. Um, you have uh, disproportionate power next door in, in the Treasury, which controls the spending levers, uh, which sets the spending review and, and, and negotiates with departments over their priorities. Uh, and and that, that standing structure is just way too powerful for number 10 to really counterbalance. So, so that, those seem to be the problems that this lack of structure creates. So I think what we've seen uh, with the sort of over the kind of lessons we've learned in previous administrations, it seems like there are kind of four core parts of the policy and delivery uh, 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 function that number 10 needs to have 
and resource well. Um, the first is uh, the policy unit, um, which uh, you know most prime ministers have had in some form, uh, and it seems like that needs to combine the the political and the civil service uh, together, both to sort of. Uh, make sure it, it is close to the Prime Minister, but also can operate the machine, as it were. Um, the second is the inevitable cross-cutting interdepartmental horse trading that, that happens in the Cabinet Office and brokered currently by uh, uh, the uh, uh, EDS in the Cabinet Office. And that function uh, seems pr fairly well uh, established. But then the two other elements that have come in and out really do need to become uh, permanent parts of the furniture. So something, a unit that looks at the long term at strategy, uh, a strategy unit, in other words, and that needs to be a vehicle for bringing in outsiders and fresh ideas. Um, so just as the policy unit combines the political and the civil service, the strategy unit needs to combine outsiders and specialists as well as uh, insiders. Um, and then finally, the, the, uh, the equivalent of an implementation unit or delivery unit to drive uh, delivery. And I think, you know, all of those things, the, all of those models have at times run up against um, uh, their limitations and, and been criticized for whatever micromanaging or marketing departments homework. So there's plenty of scope for learning how those roles should function. But that those roles need to be there, I think, is uh, undeniable. And then the final thing I guess I'd say is that um, the, the other ele elephant in the room in a sense is that there needs to be some mechanism to co-opt the, uh, or to, to, for number 10 and the Treasury to work much more closely together um, and to uh, make sure that the, uh, the spending reviews and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the public finances are managed in a way that reinforces and, and reflects the priorities and the strategy uh, that number 10 has and whether I think there's a number of ways you could do that I mean most obviously running things like joint spending reviews but there may be structural changes as well like um, you know even uh, uh, having a, a chief secretary that spans both number 10 and um, uh, number 11 um, that, that there's various ways that you could sort of integrate that at the sort of um, organizational and civil service level, but also at the ministerial level, I think, to make sure that number 10 and, and the Treasury are uh, working close together. So uh, that, I think, is the sort of bare bones of what um, uh, uh, Keir Starmer's centre of government should look like. Very good. Thank you very much, Ian. So, Sonia, can I come to you next? I mean, you've been a close observer of uh, government over the years. Do you agree with that critique? What are the main problems with the centre that you'd identify? Uh, thanks for that, uh, Hannah. So I think unlike lots of the rest of the panel, I actually haven't worked at the uh, centre of government in a senior role. So my reflections are very much kind of looking at it uh, from the outside. I do agree uh, with a lot of what Ian has said. What I thought I would do is just reflect a bit on short termism as a theme in politics. I think it's really interesting that, oh, is that interference? Oh, oh OK, fine. OK, excellent. Policy exchange doing something. Right, okay. <laughs> um, so um, I think it's really interesting that short-termism has sort of emerged as a theme both last week in uh, the Prime Minister's speech, although you know, there was a certain irony in uh, talking about long-termism at the same time as you make the decision to cancel uh, the uh, Birmingham to Manchester League of HS2. But clearly it was something that he was looking to, um, it, it was rhetoric that he wanted to project. And then we just just heard from Keir Starmer this afternoon um, talking about long-term
long-termism and uh, mission-driven government. So I think it's interesting that we're in a point where politicians are at least acknowledging, um, if not always living, uh, uh, the idea that short-termism has been a problem um, in our politics. And I think if you look at all of the big issues, actually, uh, the really big policy challenges that I think the country faces, whether it's kind of ageing, lack of failure to reform social care. I mean, it's it's just crazy how many reports we've had uh, setting out, uh, uh, you know, uh, j- uh, roadmaps to reform social care and like just literally nothing has been done. People have just been talking about it for the last 20 years. I think if you look at public health, some of the challenges there are really long term. I think the housing crisis, again, we need really long term um, solutions then on education and the attainment gap um, again that requires um, really long-term thinking but I think we do have to be a bit honest because I think short-termism is a massive feature of our politics and I think there are some parts of it that are institutional and some parts of it that are actually just political and are kind of quite hardwired into the system so um, you know I do think that there are things that we can do as Ian has nodded to um, in terms of sort of trying through our institutions at the centre of government um, to uh, get more long-term thinking. Uh, but I think some of it is just, it's it's the rea- day-to-day reality of, of politicians who face elections, um, you know, every few years or so. And so I think it's going to be a very interesting um, challenge uh, for Labour, because actually I think some of what they're talking about is incredibly uh, long-term, whether it's kind of, you know, setting up uh, GB Energy, for example, or some of uh, what Keir Starmer was saying today around housing um, and planning. Um, you know, when that hits with the hard reality of being in government and to, needing to bring out kind of policy announcements for party conferences, um, uh, is that really going to uh, work? But I think that there are some institutional things. Um, I would say um, the first thing is obviously, and I'm sure other people are going to talk about um, the Treasury as well and the way that the Treasury... Um, Um, both the Treasury's time horizons, I suppose, so uh, the length of time over which it it measures value and the rate at which it discounts kind of uh, return on investment in the future, but also what it values. Um, And I think those are both kind of quite um, significant issues uh, at the centre of government. The one thing I will say, though, is, um, uh, is that... Um, so, because uh, because I, I, before being becoming a journalist, I worked in and around the policy sector for a number of years, um, uh, and so the number of reports that you get from charities, I'm very sympathetic to it, where they basically set out a case for investing in a policy, and it's like spend one pound on this and you you know save 20 pounds in 20 years time um and I, I, to be honest i think that well a that analysis has no purchase on the treasury whatsoever um but there are questions actually about why that is what you should be doing what you're doing because actually i think a lot of the time some of the assumptions that that kind of analysis based on is based on can be quite flaky i also think that um So one of the charities I used to work for was a charity called the Dartington Social Research Unit. It was about how you use evidence to improve children's outcomes. So obviously that takes you to a big discussion around prevention um, and early intervention uh, when it comes to children's services um, and education and kind of, uh, you know, uh, children's services more holistically. Um, But I think there is a certain amount of being honest that people have to do. So um, our research, and this would have been in 2012, back then showed... um, you know, the, the, tr- the tricky thing about an investor-save argument is that actually 
our research showed that um, you know a small proportion of children who needed to be in contact with high level acute services were actually in contact with high level acute services. So it's absolutely great if you invest in evidence based prevention um, that enables you to um, you know that means that that child might not need um, you know child and adolescent mental health services three years down the road um, you know or other acute services. But the reality is that actually there's another child waiting to come and use those acute services. So I think. Um, some of the invest to save arguments um we're not always honest that actually we should be doing prevention but that isn't necessarily going to remove the need for expensive acute services and actually maybe we, sh we just need to be spending more so um so i think those are just a, uh, that's that's just an important theme that i think labor really need to be thinking about um when they uh, if and if they were the next election Thanks, Sonia. And that leads nicely into the question I was going to ask you, Alex, because one of the things we've um, that our commission has found is this point about how difficult it is when you're at the centre to stick to a strategy because of all these imperatives to, to think short term um, and, and to get knocked off course. So do you want to tell us a little bit about why we think um, having a, a more strategic centre is something that we've been thinking a lot about? Yeah, thanks, Hannah. And actually, just picking up on the very first thing that, that Sonia observed, um, which is uh, uh, sometimes it's a good thing not to have had government experience in these kind of uh, conversations, because uh, uh, there is you know, sometimes through this process of uh, the Centre Commission, um, I was a civil servant for a long time, uh, I was kind of head of office for Cabinet Secretary, Health, health Secretary. Um, it's, it's remarkably hard to shed your preconceptions about how the centre uh, should work and what some of the problems around the, the centre are. So, you know, a, a word for, uh, for outside experience there. Um, I mean, I think this amplifies quite a lot of what uh, Ian was saying on the strategic point, but it has really struck us in doing this work that we have a kind of, you know, we've started calling it a hollow centre um, around strategy, the ability to um, set strategy uh, and then implement it. Um, and, and why is that? I mean, some of these will were covered by Ian, so I, I, I won't um, linger on them, but I think kind of, you can think of it in th along three axes. One, the sort of the institutions, the departments. The second is the kind of program of government, and the third is the prime minister and how they spend their time and how they do the job themselves. I mean, on the on the institutions, there's a uh, we're, we've been looking at number ten, the cabinet office and uh, the treasury. There is you know, clearly a well-established question about the number ten treasury relationship. You can argue about whether you should split the treasury or not. You know, there are good pros and cons um, uh, there. Um, I certainly think. At the very least, number 10, uh, and I hope Team Starmer are thinking about this, needs its own economic uh, capability uh, to give, if not equality of arms, then at least sort of equality of conversation between the Prime Minister and the Chancellor to, um, uh, to be able to get the right balance uh, between, um, uh, between the two uh, parts of government. I think over the course of the last 10, 20, 30 years, we've seen, um, we've seen number 10 Treasury relationships that were too close, arguably, Cameron Osborne, without enough grit, with Without enough challenge, um, uh, you know, okaying things that shouldn't have been okayed and um, uh, neglecting uh, things that needed uh, uh, more grit. Um, we've also seen treasuries that were extremely unaligned, where nothing could get done, or uh, you know, Blair Brown, uh, May Hammond, um, and so we found it for whatever reason in our system to really hard to get the balance right between a treasury that can say no, um, uh, but um, uh, a treasury and a number 10 that also enables setting the strategic priorities of the government uh, and then aligning budgets 
to those priorities. And I think that is something that we we don't do very well. The cabinet office, well, I could go off on one about the cabinet office, but it is hard to find someone who's worked in government or around government that has many kind things to say about the cabinet office. Um, uh, so uh, many reasons for that, but it's grown an awful lot over recent years. It's important there is a home for the corporate side of government. It's really important, as Ian said, that there's a functioning government that does the brokering, but the cabinet office, whether it's um, fallout from Brexit, fallout from COVID, um, has sort of grown and changed itself in ways that have not not um, uh, not improved its effectiveness. More briefly than those two two other areas I mentioned, the, the program. I said we're bad at setting a program and then allocating budget to it. Um, I think it would. Uh, if all governments are completely recognising the political realities, um, uh, as Sonia said about the long term, if all governments took a breath at the start and worked out how they were translating their manifesto into a programme for government uh, and invested political capital um, into that, then I think that would be you know, good for uh, achievement in government. The coalition government, um, and I suspect there are um, uh, very mixed views on that in this, uh, in this particular room, in this particular place, but the coalition government, um, whatever decisions it made, operated pretty effectively. And one of the reasons for that was there was a period of a few weeks where a proper programme for government was, um, uh, was established. We've been having a bit of a debate internally in the Commission about um, whether the reason that government then stuck to it was because it had invested political capital in it or whether there was something intrinsic to the nature of a coalition, which means that um, once you've done the deal, you really need to stick to the deal, which had its pros and cons definitely uh, across the coalition. Um, but I think it's both. And I think a prime minister, a chancellor, a government um, really investing in, in a, in a programme um, would, would really help. And then the Prime Minister, this is partly a point about number 10, it's partly a point about how Prime Ministers have chosen to do their jobs. They get, you know, I was going to say inevitably, but hopefully not inevitably, they get heavily drawn into the day-to-day, -day, the media cycle. It's really hard to elevate yourself as Prime Minister uh, into what really matters um, for your government. I've, I've been really struck thinking about um, uh, being inside and outside government, uh, how um, when Prime Ministers talk about their legacies, with some exceptions, perhaps Blair and Northern Ireland is one, it's often not the things they put their time into. So if I had a sort of, you know, magic wand, I'd quite like to put the legacy of a Prime Minister front and centre now. What, what is going to be your legacy and therefore what should you be investing your time in um, uh, uh, to try and just give some incentive uh, to move away from the day to day? Um, the final point really was that it is sometimes easy, and again, mentioning it in this context, it's easy because so much of it became part of the established architecture to underestimate how much Tony Blair and Gordon Brown changed in 1997 when they came into government. So establishing the number 10 architecture, okay, that has waxed and waned a bit, um, but, you know, is there in one form or another. Bringing in a chief of staff in Jonathan Powell, um, uh, uh, Reese Klein, my colleague and I were talking earlier, setting multi-year spending reviews was a sort of extraordinary innovation in 1997 and you know, has, with some uh, uh, uh kind of uh, sustained. Um, so I would hope that if Labour do come into government in 2023, 2024, 2025, um, uh, uh, there is a, you know, there's a, there's a moment to, um, to, to reframe uh, the system. I was also really struck by one point in Keir Starmer's speech where he said, uh, he was talking about the whole of government and the whole of the state, I think, but uh, we want a more powerful engine, not a bigger car. None of this is to argue that the centre should get bigger. Um, I think that might compound some of the problems with it. It needs to be um, more powerful, but also more powerful in, in order to decentralise, to empower uh, uh, the rest of the system. Thanks very much, Alex. Um, so we've talked about the problems, we've talked about possibly some sort of structural answers, but 
Mike, I think one of the things we've been really very struck by also when thinking about the central government is just how important the people are. Um, the people people create cultures, but people also bring skills and aptitudes and experience. So could you say a little bit about who you think we need at the centre of government? Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, so just a little bit about who Prospect are for a moment. Um, we represent primarily in the private sector, um, engineers, scientists, managers, uh, whole range of people who've got a, a technical and uh, uh, sort of a mathematical background. And we represent compatible sort, uh, sort of people in uh, the civil service. And frankly, these are the people who are often overlooked in the civil service because there's a, a significant focus on um, policy specialists who can um, you know, deliver some of the strategy that's been talked about here um, and who are obviously uh, therefore can be powerful advocates of their vision of uh, how support is provided to government. But I think what's interesting in listening to Keir Starmer this afternoon is there are some very clear um, commitments he wishes to deliver, which are going to require a significant change in the nature of people who are supporting him at the centre or indeed supporting him in, in the, wider, the wider civil service. I mean, there's echoes there today of the white heat of technology. For those of you who uh, are either historians or actually um, uh, can, can recall it more, more, more directly, talking about uh, significant commitments on building infrastructure. We represent uh, engineers, scientists, managers in the power industry. Welcome a lot of what we heard today, but actually the delivery of it is far more complicated uh, than some of the, we need more cables, we need more, we need more infrastructure. Everywhere across this economy, we're going to need more skills and we're going to need more people who are from a STEM background. And I speak as a humanities graduate who was really, you know, marveled at the fact when I was at uh, university, wanting to know that they had to go and learn things, uh, whereas I could just probably get away with a little bit of advocacy. So um, we, we welcome uh, a government that's committed to real measurable outcomes uh, and a move away, as other panellists have um, indicated, from short-termism. We've really encountered the short-termism for the sort of people that we represent, because I can't emphasise enough that in, in central government, in the civil service, there is a crisis of pay and morale. I'll come back to that in a minute. But there's a crisis of pay and morale because there are direct private sector analogues, private sector competitors to a whole range of the skills uh, that central government need now and will need in the future uh, to deliver Labour's vision. And when you've got those private sector competitors simply earning more money, um, then the attraction of, of public service and listening to Keir today about how government needs to be about service, uh, about uh, power over protest, I think it's particularly resonant when you talk about government as service to the people, given a number of things which have happened under, under this, this government. So what we would argue is that government needs to be an intelligent procurer, it needs to be an intelligent customer, and it needs to be an intelligent uh, uh, regulator. And all of those things need to be actually influencing the centre as well as influencing uh, the various departments. So you need people who understand data, project management, frontline delivery. And what I think this government will also have to confront, and there's a little echo of it currently, I think, in, in the present government, is more permeable boundaries between the public and private sector. And if you need more permeable boundaries between the public and private sector, you're going to have to devise a pay and reward strategy and a people strategy that enables that. Think about pensions, think about pay, think about reward. If you want that interchange, You've got to give people the comfort to, 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 to do it. We did some research a few years ago which suggested that, and, and this is where 
if Dave Penman was in the room from the FDA, a good friend in the trade union movement, he'd slightly depart from me for a few moments because I'm obviously going to argue that you know there's a bit of a, a tendency in in the civil service towards the the power of the generalist fixer at the top of the civil service, and you know that is still going to be needed for the future. But we would argue needs to be a rebalancing towards specialists. Our research suggested a few years ago that for every hundred policy professionals in the senior civil service, there was just 13. Uh, who were responsible for project delivery, 10 in, dig in digital and data technology, and not a single one with a statistical science or engineering background. Now, there's some welcome indications that the fast stream in the future will be 50% STEM, but that's got to be delivered. And you've also got to encourage those people to want to work in the civil service and commit a career to it. And one thing which has been demonstrated beyond uh, question, uh, as we've uh, seen the cost of living crisis impact uh, the whole economy, public service perhaps in, in particular, is that the current processes for pay, reward, the delegated approach uh, in the civil service is broken beyond repair. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on that because that's, that is a, a whole uh, study in, in, in itself. But I go back to this point I made a short while ago. If you want to attract skills from the private sector, if you also want to keep the quality of people in the public sector, you've got to devise a process for this uh, uh, for the future. And the short termism uh, has resulted in a level of problem for an incoming uh, new administration, um, which is going to require a huge amount of expectations management. Now, we're up for some expectations management if there's a clear pathway for a new administration about what it's going to do. But it's going to inherit a, 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 a situation, not only in a macro sense across the economy, worse than, 90, worse than 97, but a civil service that's faced uh, headcount reductions and more announced a week ago in Manchester without a plan what, 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 uh, whatsoever. Uh, let's hope they don't get the chance to actually implement it. Um, you know, one of the people that we represent have experienced a real 26% uh, real terms uh, pay cut since tw 2010. Um, and various commentators commenting upon the uh, the failure, not not just of the current government, but others, to value specialist skills and what they can bring to policymaking and long-term strategy. So, look, Labour and anybody who's wise knows this isn't going to be fixed in a year. Um, but if it is, if we are going to have an intelligent government, customer uh, relationship with uh, on an equal. Uh, footing with the private sector, and we can regulate well. Uh, one of the big problems in energy and uh, other forms of regulation is that the companies know more than government does, because because actually the good people are taken into uh, the private sector or taken into the companies and then uh, uh, respond accordingly to government. So we very much think that Labour has to set a pathway here, a big amount of expectations management, but a huge amount of it is what sort of people uh, are they going to bring in to actually allow them to, to deliver their missions? Thanks very much, Mike. So, um, of course, one of the big questions, which is very obvious and came up again in Keir Starmer's speech just now, is is the um, intention of uh, the Labour Party, should it get in, to uh, take a mission-led approach to uh, government. Alex, can you just say a few words about what you think that might mean um, for the centre. Um, it's obviously, it's a, it's, a, it's a phrase we've heard quite a lot like, uh, by now, but will it mean anything different for how the centre of government needs to be organised, do you think? Yeah, it was interesting it came up in the speech because there was some suggestion that, um, you know, 
shadow ministers shouldn't be talking about mission government or but then uh, it's uh, you know it's back in which i think is a good thing i think you know mission government uh, is a, a good way of talking about the complexity of long term problems cross cutting problems that we often we often talk about um I mean, in terms of what it means for the uh, center it comes a little bit back for me to that program point being really clear about what your priorities what your objectives are uh, and having a program that is you know implementable you know, there's the there's the the politics needed to get you elected but then a program that um <clears throat> that is is delivered through having the right people in place as as mike um mike was saying um i also think there's something about the missions being different and the center needs they they're qualitatively quite different as i understand them there are those in the audience who will have a better sense than than i do but um uh but the center of government needs to be able to uh set up and then interact with the five different um missions in a um way that is meaningful for each of those missions so i think for me the you know the classic example answer from the civil servant in me is to say well you set up five cabinet committees and then you know bobs your uncle um uh, if you're serious about mission uh, driven mission led government then uh, that is sort of so inadequate an answer that um uh, uh, uh that um i'm i'm sure it's not one that the civil service would suggest um uh so it, it you need to i mean it goes back to i think some of those functions that ian suggested you need a um a strategy unit that probably thinks about strategy a policy unit that probably thinks about policy um delivery implementation call it what you will um uh unit that um uh that that focuses on how it's going to be implemented and that needs to be able to engage in each of those missions on its on on its own terms if you like i would say one thing and i think this does come back to the then the kind of overall coherence of the that the, the uh, missions approach which is that obviously those were previously in government um those were uh, uh closely connected but sort of individual small units sitting in either number 10 the cabinet office or the treasury i think there is something that we are likely to talk about in our um uh, commission uh, report around uh, integrating that strategic brain more completely um uh, and uh so yes you need policy delivery strategy implementation whatever um uh experts in government um but how do you bring that together so that you have all of those different specialisms those different expertise but it is a genuine strategic brain that is doing the doing the the heavy lifting and that again you know apologies but it's the civil servant in me comes back to some of those departmental institutional structures which of course won't overcome the um uh the politics of the day uh and the need to you know react and and, and manage that but uh will uh deal with some of those uh incentives that tilts decision making in particular directions particularly between uh number 10 and treasury thanks alex um one of the things which i guess surprised me didn't surprise me uh when we uh listened to the prime minister's speech last week um was the narrative we heard afterwards that some of the ideas that had been there in the speech had been sort of um essentially focus groups right in the center of government by the prime minister and his top team not really discussed beyond the top team because they wanted to keep them extremely sort of close and for them not to leak not that, that really worked um uh and that the really there was a very small circle developing those ideas which then uh came out uh in in the speech and i think this is a um one example of uh, something we often see at the center that sometimes it can be a relatively small group of people working together who end up being much too impermeable um to outside ideas to the rest of government but also um uh people beyond government who have ideas and want to feed ideas into the center so sonia i wanted to just ask for your thoughts on um what's important what are the sort of obviously you've seen it 
being in um in and around government but also as a journalist um what do you think is important for the center of government to know and for where they can get their information from well it's, it's interesting that you um mention that because i think that the the the, the pace at which Network North and that announcement fell apart uh, was a lot to do with the fact that it was a small group of people who developed it and they developed it very quickly and it was developed outside the normal processes of government policymaking at a party conference, which is sort of the one time of year, actually, when government um, just sort of hands stuff over to the political side and it's the political side who controls it. And did you just remind me what the question you asked at the end was as well? Well, I, I think I just, we're very interested in this question of how the centre absorbs information and how data gets in and out and who the centre talks to. Um, and so how you can make a centre good at that stuff rather than just good at talking to itself. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really, um, that's a really interesting question. And obviously there was a, there's probably quite a lot of lessons that come out of the pandemic actually, in terms of um, uh, the way that data was used uh, to drive kind of day-to-day um, -day decision making and the way that that data was um, very joined up with sort of a group of um, people on it. So I do wonder if um, there are uh, some lessons from there. I mean, I think if you take a step back and think about how, you know, an organize an organization looking to achieve a strategy, it will always have some, you know, if it's a good organization, it will always have some kind of um, data dashboard. And, you know, it does make me think about, you know, the PSA targets and the sort of subdivisions under each of those um, that there were under Labour. So I guess, I guess it's a question of, um, because as you say, there's so much data out there, I guess it's a question of knowing what your strategy is, knowing what those key bits of data are in terms of outcomes and then, you know, the outputs that will lead to those outcomes um, and, which, and keeping track of them, which is obviously like a lot, it's much easier, uh, it's much harder than it sounds. It sounds easy, um, but it's not. Uh, but that is kind of key to strategy, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um, I can put one more question to you. In, and then I think we'll open up to the floor, so do have your questions ready. Um, this idea about what the role of the Prime Minister is has, has uh, come up already from a number of, of panellists, because there's what the Prime Minister ends up doing, um, and as we've discussed, some of that can, can, can be very short-term. But there's also, I think, an important question about like what is the USP of the Prime Minister? What are the things that only a Prime Minister can can do and we've been thinking a lot about how you can make sure a prime minister is really well supported to do those things so what would be your take on the really crucial stuff which is the role for the prime minister which sometimes maybe the other distractions can take away from well i think the most obvious thing is the long-term uh uh perspective and i'm not sure whether as i say because all the incentives on you know, certainly a leader of the opposition, uh, to be much more reactive than that. And that creates this kind of... Now, you can have... I, I think what you saw in the sort of Blair era was someone who was very interested in the detail mm. of the kind of long-term agenda and that sort of thing. And we have to sort of recognise that a lot of people aren't necessarily going to... A lot of prime ministers aren't going to uh, 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 be quite as engaged in that. But I think you have to create the structures to lean into that stuff and mm. to draw, because that kind of long-term strategy development is something only really the prime minister can do um but it's it just it just also to pick up and try to get the two of the other questions i think there's a sort of um uh you need to make sure that the structures at the center are sort of invariant to two things one is that as sonia was saying you're always going to get if you've got a political environment like we have at the moment with a prime minister who hasn't got its own general election mandate and is a year out from the election 
you're going to get people bypassing the standing structures, whatever they are. That shouldn't change the fact that we need them. Uh, but the second thing to the point Alex is answering is like, it, also that structure needs to be slightly invariant to the five missions, or it might have been leveling up in, in because those missions or that leveling up in general, or whatever, will inevitably evolve. These things have a shelf life and you need to make sure you don't uh, set up your entire structure around something that is going to be out of date in a couple of years time you don't want to see the, the underlying structures fall apart with that thank you Ian okay we'll take some questions my colleague Alex has got a raving mic there's a lady here in the front row Could you come to her first thank you Thanks. <clears throat> Fiona Rutherford from Justice. Um, uh, so mission government to me is actually, I think, a really great opportunity. Sonia, as you alluded to in uh, COVID, I think it was a really good example of where government departments, which are traditionally pretty siloed, mm. both in the way they count things and the way that they are budgeted, um, the way they're just set up. It was a really great way in which you could bring together and have a, an outcome-focused um, approach. I just wondered, what, what do you do without that sort of pandemic to uh, enthuse people to work in that way, to build on some of that great ways, those great ways of working uh, to ensure that the centre uh, encompasses not just the four institutions that, Ian, you've, you've alluded to, uh, but actually is, is broader and works really successfully together? Thanks. Hi, thank you. Uh, Alex Case, uh, now a senior director in a global tech firm, but used to work at uh, number 10, the Cabinet Office, the Treasury, and actually at Ministry of Justice. Um, and uh, building very much on Fiona's question, um, I used to be part of the Transition Task Force, which was the task force set up to deal with Brexit and push through the, the withdrawal agreement effectively and the implementation. There was a similar task force for COVID. And I'm wondering whether the task force model that was implemented connected to the cabinet committee models where we had the XO and the XS committee for Brexit could be aligned to the five missions of government and actually a way to, to kind of coordinate uh, from the centre. Thanks. And why don't you give it to the lady next to you? <laughs> right there. <laughs> Thanks, JC Clearer from EY. Um, a different type of transition question. So obviously um, we're at the Labour Party conference and uh, if Labour is elected, the people in Lotto will move into number 10. Any thoughts on preparing for that transition and the difference between running the centre of a political party outside of government and running it from inside of government? Great questions, thanks. Um, can I encourage the panel only to answer the questions they feel they have the expertise to answer so they wouldn't have to have everyone answer everything and we can get a few more questions. Alex, I'm going to start with you. Uh, thanks. Well, I will, I'll leave Josie's question then because that's probably not my uh, uh, not my area. But um, uh, COVID pandemic, new ways of working. Uh, this is I'm giving evidence to the COVID inquiry on Friday, so this is a good limbering up session. Um, uh, it wish me luck. Uh, the um, I think it's almost a truism. It's quite easy to say, oh, didn't we all work well in that crisis? And can't we then adopt the methods that we have used in the crisis to day-to-day um, -to -day work? And I think that I think it's quite a fundamental error. Of course, there are some specific things, but it's always struck me that in a crisis, it's command and control. It's um, uh, it is um, quick decision making. It's uh, being comfortable with uncertainty. And uh, outside a crisis, it's often alliance building and um, uh, uh, and looking more deeply at evidence and you know, building coalitions and, and and so on. Of course, that's a kind of that's as much of a cliche as the uh, as as the other one. But um, um, but I I do think it's they're quite different things but the 
point that I really would pick up on to, you know, I suspect uh, you would agree was the point that Sonia made about data and data in uh, COVID. I think, um, uh, I think one of the, th one of the problems with the way that um, uh, the treasury in particular, but all government departments operate is that evidence and data is not always used to get to the best possible answer, but is used as a tool or as a kind of organizational power play uh, or whatever. So I think one of the things I hope we'll be able to recommend as part of this commission is uh, a function in the center that really gets to grips with um, evidence and, and, and data uh, across a kind of wide range of uh, policy areas. So that's one of the kind of ways of working that I'd pick up on. Task force, yes. Um, and I think uh, you know, cabinet committees are decision-making tools. Task forces can be about bringing people together. The critical thing though is, it's, you know, is that it has a clear objective uh, and probably has a clear endpoint, and you know you will uh, know all about that. So, I think um, uh, I think there absolutely is a role for that. The name doesn't matter um, so much. There was a fashion for start and finish groups or something, you know, what, uh, at one point. Um, but it's about a clear objective, having the right people to. Um, Mike's point, um, uh, and then having a mandate. I, I slightly wonder whether the missions are a bit too big and hairy for that, and there's something a bit more sophisticated that we need that we're going to you know, carry on thinking about over the next six months. Sonia. Um, so I, I definitely take what uh, you say on board, um, Alex. I guess, I guess the one thing that I think there was there during the sense of the pandemic, it was just this false sense of mission. Yeah. Like everyone knew what the mission was. And um, I think uh, for mission-driven government, you absolutely need that more same sense of mission, but it can be harder to create when it's something quite long-term and you're not you know, working in the short, sharp kind of um, uh, uh, atmosphere of a crisis. And I think that does just have to come from leadership, political leadership and vision. Um, and that's why I think it's very important, you know, uh, that in thinking about those, I mean, Keir Starmer, if he becomes prime minister, is really going to have to take responsibility, I think, for, as you know, coming to what Ian was saying, uh, driving those uh, missions through government. And I do think that the, um, the sort of dual role of a prime minister is, again, it's just baked in and it's very important, you know, because of the democracy we live in, but the prime minister has a dual role as leader of the nation and as leader of a party. And I think it's when um, majorities are small and there's lots of political chopping and changing, lots of uncertainty, like, you know, basically the circumstances we've been living in um, as a country for what feels like quite a while, although, you know, Johnson did have a very big majority. But it's when, 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 when politics feels a bit fragile, I think, from the perspective of being leader of a party, that the leader of the nation and that kind of long-term vision for kind of UK, the UK as a sort of entity, um, I think it's it's harder to sustain. So um, yeah, I, I you know I hope that, um, but I'm I'm sure there is is thought going into that. I think that, that's a really good point. And then one of the people who gave evidence to the commission told us that w when you have a crisis, it's great in focusing minds on the crisis and so on. But the first meetings that drop out of the calendar are the long-term planning ones. And if they drop out the calendar and people start not going to them, they don't necessarily get put back in. So that's a big risk we're conscious of. Ian. Yes, yeah, so um, I mean, on Alex's question, I think Alex probably knows much more about that than I do. So I think we have to ask you to answer your own question <laughs> uh, on that. Um, uh, on uh, on Josie's question, I mean, I think I, I, I probably Sonia's got much more experience of the, the, the opposition uh, um, uh, life, but I think it, it does feel like the, the first thing that characterizes the transition is that you have a situation where the, the leaders sort of 
in complete control and opposition. And then as soon as they get into number 10, particularly if it's not particularly uh, well-staffed and structured, then all the power bases go out to the departments and you get a complete reversal of or inversion of the of the kind of power ba balance between the leader and the top team. And I think that is probably uh, one aspect and probably not even the most important aspect of that transition. Um, but just on Fiona's point, I think the... I think probably the way I, I completely agree with Alex's characterization that, that in a way the the pandemic is the exception that sort of proves the rule, right? But I do think that probably the way you join up the silos has got to be through the long term vision. Um, because that's where if you start to approach problems at their sort of uh, in their at their full extent, you realise they're all cost cutting and all this kind of thing. So, you know, a classic case is right now if you look at um you know, the OBR fiscal risks report, we've got an absolutely terrifying projection for the number of people who are going to be on employment support allowance and the level of disability in the workforce. Uh, and that really is a bit of a, I mean, quite apart from it being a human emergency, it seems it's a big fiscal emergency too. Um, but that requires a pretty profound uh, look at what's happened to the deterioration in well-being measures, in mental health, in uh, employment support and services to, to the unemployed and education. So it's it's usually cross-cutting, but instead what we have is DWP looking at how to tinker with the work capability assessment and, uh, you know, how can we stop more people flowing onto the benefits? And it's like, this is not at all up to the scale of the challenge we face it. But if you have that long-term um, um, uh, body that's taking a long-term view about, about the challenges we face, that is the sort of thing that should help to guide departments into doing cross-departmental stuff. So that's why I was... Thank so I'll try to be brief. I, I mean, I, I just slightly pose a question back, actually, that um, I struggle a little bit with the presentation of the pandemic as an innovating time for, for government delivery. I, I think there's a there's some in, there's some interesting uh, aspect aspects uh, uh, to that. I think parts of government were were, were incredible and and rose to an, an, an just an extraordinary challenge, and maybe others were were less so. I, I think the interesting thing for any of that this discussion is. An incoming government, where's the levers of power? And I think um, in the cabinet office, there are no levers of power for an incoming government. Um, and that's particularly the case when it comes to people management. And if people management is important, as I said a few moments ago, I think it is. Uh, I think an incoming government's going to realize that actually all of this delegation and all of the authority is in departments. And their ability to uh, manage the sort of people they want um, into the circumstances they want them in is, is something going to have to think about very carefully before they go into government. Because whilst cabinet office have, which is about no power, uh, treasury have it all um, to the point of, as we know, uh, of, of veto and that ten constant tension between some more authoritative departments than others, but still coming up against uh, treasury veto. My simple plea is whatever groups are delivering the missions in whatever way, uh, that you have in the room, and this is where Ian will probably have to keep me under the table. Not just economists, as bright as they are, but actually you have some you have some uh, specialists from who are engineers, who are scientists, and so on. And I, I go back to the example of energy policy. You can have all the ambitions you want, but if you don't understand in the room the physics of electricity and what you can and can't do with it, you ain't building a proper policy system. Thanks. Okay, let's take some more questions. There's a gentleman on the aisle here, Alex. Hi, I'm Mike Barnes. I've got nothing to do with central government. Um, and in, in response to Mike's point, you get 10 economists in a room, you give them a yes or no answer, you get five different responses. <laughs> the simple fact is, cutting through the noise today, all I'm hearing is that we're rearranging the decks on the, on the, on the Titanic. 
task forces, not working parties, putting five structures in place. Is it not time we admitted that the administration of government in this in the UK is broken, and actually look at it from the from the bottom up and completely and utterly changing the way we think? How many times do we hear the question? The answer is no from a Treasury person before you've even asked the question. We need to completely restructure, and it's not working parties, it's not reviews, it's not more task force. It's restructuring the whole of administration of government in this country. Thank you. Thank you. Two questions at the front here, I think. Yeah, okay. Thank uh, thanks very much. Um, Andrew Wyatt, here as a CLP delegate, but formerly civil service, formerly cabinet office for a while. Um, sorry. Um, <laughs> Me too. But I think the thing with... Um, You've been, you've been sort of fencing around a bit or circling around a bit and Mike began to allude to really is what we expect to be the nature of cabinet government. Um, uh, one of Boris Johnson's hapless cabinet ministers, and I can't remember which one, doesn't really matter, um, said to one interviewer that, well, the prime minister takes the decisions, we're just here to support him. And I thought, bloody hell, we've come a long way. That's not how it's meant to be at all. Um <laughs> When Labour comes to power, if Labour comes to power, I think it's going to be a very strong, energetic front bench, raring to go. And it's going to take rather more than Ian's sort of horse trading brokerage focus. So I think, you know, one question is, how do you actually have a cabinet office that really facilitates cabinet government, if that's still constitutionally what we think we have? And the second, just a little rider on this of accretion of uh, the sort of corporate management functions. In the past, um, they've been uh, seated in sort of a fourth part of the, the centre, MPO, MCS, had different names at different times. Maybe it's time we went back to that and separated out the procurement, the property management, all the essential but secondary things from the policy strategy and high-level things. Thank, Thank you. you. Sorry, it's a statement you have a question. Thank you. Uh, Subhash Firamal, partner at Bain & Company. We're a strategy consultancy, uh, and I've been in and out of both the no-deal Brexit response as well as uh, the COVID response. Um, I think structures only take you so far. I think actually what I've seen over the last five, ten years is the issue of clarity of accountabilities, and that is at the core of all of these cross-cutting issues that we're going to be facing. So it doesn't matter if we put in a strategy unit and a delivery unit and an implementation unit if the corollary changes to the departments aren't made in order to really facilitate that delivery to happen. So uh, what I'm asking is, from your perspective, what are those changes that need to happen on the other side of the coin in order to make not just the center work, but the whole work? And actually, although it was phrased in a different way than I would, in a world where we're actually going to devolve power away from Whitehall, how does the Commission think about what needs to change in that context? Excellent, an excellent set of questions to raise us up a level. Um, Ian, would you like to start? Yeah, um, I, I guess I take Subash's question um, uh, mostly, I think. Um, uh, and to wrap in the other two, two questions a bit, I, I mean, I totally agree that structures only take you too far. I think it's just that that's a necessary but not sufficient condition, and it's the necessary condition we haven't had uh, uh, for quite a long time. So I think that is that's why I highlight it. And then the question is, how does that? It, you can then 
run that well or badly. So to the gentleman's point about is the administrative, the whole administration of government broken? I mean, you use the example of the Treasury. The Treasury is very effective at saying no. <laughs> so you might not like what it does, but it is quite effective uh, at how it does it. And in a sense, it's about trying to bring number 10 and, and the core of the centre of government up to the level of that level of capacity and, and capability so that, it's, so that you can get some proper institutional tension uh, uh, um, operating. Um, and I think that helps with the accountability if you've got those structures in place. I agree it's not the full answer. I think in terms of how the delivery unit, I mean, there are lots of criticisms about how the delivery unit operated under Barber, but there were, I think there was, and, and what you probably need to do is uh, devote a lot of uh, uh, consultant time to figuring out um, how do you make sure that a delivery a delivery or implementation unit is able to sort of get departments to experiment, also to probably um, have people co-located in the department and in the centre so it's not a sort of marking homework thing, but it's a joint endeavour. I mean, how you skin that cat, I think, is a very big and, and difficult question. And whether it whether that such a body works will come entirely down to how you actually end up doing it. So I totally agree it's, it's a necessary, but it's not sufficient condition just to have the structure right. I'll just make one point. Uh, look, uh, it seems to me that industrial strategy is back on the agenda. If industrial strategy is back on the agenda, you organise the civil service to meet the needs of the industrial strategy, not the other way around. Now, that is radical. That is very radical. But actually, if you think of number of the areas where we operate, defence, you know, defence procurement, the spend normally unhinges a government at some stage in their, in their tenure. Energy, we've talked about. Aviation, another big area of our, of our membership. You know, you can, get, you can gather industry you can gather the necessary people of government within the structure of industrial strategy. But if you've got an industrial strategy, which is actually then just simply looking out on the a, a cohort of departments that haven't really changed and don't relate to it, you're going to have tensions. So I'm slightly in the area, uh, yet we need some radical looking at this. And critically, I say again, Labour needs to be thinking about this, um, you know, last quarter of this year, first quarter next. These are the things which are going to hamper its delivery of its big missions. Thanks, Mike. Sonia? Uh, well, I'm glad devolution's come up because um, this is an event about the centre, but I think how the centre relates to the local level is really important. And I mean, it's it's not a particularly new thing to say. It's been, it's been very uh, frequently observed that we're very centralised in terms of uh, spending decisions and that actually, if you want to overcome silos, between different areas of spending, which you really need to do if you're interested in long-term thinking, um, then um, you know doing it at the White Hall is just too big. Like you can't. It's very difficult to see that at the White Hall level, but you can do it at the local level um, through things like place-based budgeting. So I think that is really um, important in terms of totally sort of knocking everything down and starting again. Though, like I have to, admit I'm a bit of a skeptic because I think the chances are you just build something that has either looks the same or has as many issues, but just in a slightly different way. And I think that's true of, you know, I think as well as short-termism, that's another feature of, um, you know, it's one of the tendencies that politics have, which is, you know, this isn't necessarily a point about the centre, but it's a cross-governmental point, which is around the obsession with structural reform when it comes to public sector public service and public sector reform so whether it's the nhs or education like my god the billions that have gone into changing commissioning structures or changing the accountability system for schools and none of it really gets at the key point which is that if you're thinking about reforming you know public service reform the absolutely key question is how do you get the schools that are you know subpar 
or below, you know, performing below average to look more like the outstanding schools. And it's the same for hospitals. And, you know, ultimately it comes down to things like accountability, but quality of people, quality of leadership. And um, none of those, you know, doing a massive multi-billion pound restructure of the school system does not bring in more outstanding school leaders. And the same is true of the NHS. So obviously you have to look at incentives, but um, yeah, I, I'm, uh, I think um, structural reform of that kind um, uh, is... Uh, uh, is yeah, there's, there's not very much evidence to suggest that it works. Alex, you get the final word. That's a privilege. Um, uh, I mean, it's a, the rearranging deck chairs. It's a really fair and it's a good challenge because these conversations do tend to get quite kind of incremental and institutional and um, administrative. But I mean, Sonia said it better than I would. You're, you're not going to get slash and burn uh, revolution from uh, from me. But to the extent that there is a radical idea, I think it is exactly the point about accountability. Uh, and it's part of the Centre Commission, but it's also stuff we've worked, we've done elsewhere. It is increasingly evident, I think, that the British system excels in a slipperiness around accountability. And it suits ministers and it suits civil servants to say, oh, it's, you know, sort of my responsibility, but it actually just like slips off over there and it just slips off over there. Um, and so we've we've talked about a new statute for the civil service um, uh, which would define the responsibilities of civil servants more around capability and um, being on the hook for the capability of the state more that gets you into an interesting debate about political accountability and what the role of ministers is but you know there's a debate to be had there but I do think much sharper clarity around accountability uh, you know to the extent there is a radical idea in here that is what that is one of them um, on cabinet government really briefly last word I think it's something we're grappling with. We haven't got an answer to it, but it's starting to feel to me somewhat dishonest to have a cabinet office that uh, tries to reflect cabinet governments when that is existing ever more theoretically rather than in reality. And so there's a question. Secretaries of state have immensely important responsibilities. I think the principle constitutionally of cabinet government is really important, particularly when it comes to whether they have confidence in the prime minister or not. But in terms of how we run the centre of government, I'm increasingly doubtful that, uh, uh, that, that the cabinet side of the cabinet office is anything more than a fiction. And on that bombshell, <laughs> uh, will you join me in thanking the panel for their remarks? <laughs>